like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F word. I am so excited for you to hear this interview with Rick. Rick is a trailblazer, a forerunner in both financial planning and financial therapy. So sit back and enjoy. Welcome back to the most hated F word podcast, where today my guest is Rick Kaler. Personally, I'm extremely excited to have a conversation with Rick today. I've read about four of his books and Rick's work really has changed my perspective and really was one of the reasons why I started this podcast to focus more on money relationship as, as opposed to understanding what hot stock or investment we need to buy. So I'm extremely excited and delighted to have Rick here. But before we jump in, I do want to read some of Rick's bio because I think it's important for everyone to understand a bit of Rick's background. So Rick is the president of Kaler Financial Group. He's a lifelong resident of Rapid City, South Dakota. He began his professional career in 1973 selling, selling and appraising real estate. He founded Kaler Financial Group in 1981. He became the first fee-only certified financial planner in South Dakota in 1983, which Rick, I'm sure there wasn't too, too many others at that point. And, <laughs> and he's one of the first certified financial therapists in the USA and the first in South Dakota. He's a co-author of four books on psychology of money, including Conscious Finance, The Financial Wisdom of Ebenezer Scrooge, Facilitating Financial Health, and Wired for Wealth. Rick has been a columnist for 28 years for several South Dakota news- newspapers and is the author of hundreds of articles and white papers. His work as a co-founder on, of OnSite's Healing Money Issues Workshop was featured by ABC News 2020 and in Wyona Jude's book, Coming Home to Myself. The Wall Street Journal hailed this work as innovative effort that combines experiential therapy with the nuts and bolts of financial planning. Rick served on several national boards and is the founding board member and past chair of the Financial Therapy Association. He's on the faculty of Golden Gate University, where he serves as a distinguished adjunct professor, professor and instructs facilitating financial health graduate course. In 2018, Rick received the Insiders Forum Iconoclast Award for his groundbreaking work in financial therapy. In 2017, and again in 2019, Investopedia named Rick as one of the top 100 most influential financial advisors. And finally, his work has been quoted in numerous places such as US Today, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, The Washington Post, Times of London, Forbes, Kiplinger, CNBC, Yahoo Finance, Market Watch, The Journal of Financial Planning, and the list literally goes on. Rick, it is my absolute pleasure to have you on the show, and I just can't appreciate the work you've been doing enough. So thanks so much and welcome. Thank you, Sean. It's really good to be here. And when you said you've read four of my co-authored books, I'm thinking, well, that's all of them. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So so I'm flattered. (laughs) Well, I really, I I really love the work you guys are doing. And uh, specifically, I love your, your perspective of the financial planner and now the financial therapist, because that is my world. So Rick, and I don't, I'm not saying this because you're on the call. Your books were the impetus to, <laughs> to me doing this podcast. And so my show is dedicated towards exploring like what I've called our minds or money and what matters most. And often I find our conversations get centered around our relationship with money. As I firmly believe once we understand this relationship, we can then gain some control over the emotions and feelings that we have, I guess, below the waterline. And then it gives us the ability to manipulate, or not manipulate, but maybe change our money relationships. So my first question for you is regarding the book, The Financial Wisdom of Ebenezer Scrooge. And I think that's a good place to talk about money relationships. Can you just share with us how this story depicts money relationships? Sure. The story of Scrooge I've been in love with since I've been a little kid, you know, Mm -hmm. Christmas side. 
I I think it was probably the 1930s version of that story that that was most popular with me. I remember it being in, in black and white. So when I started working with uh, Dr. Ted Klontz, uh, we developed a, fin- a financial therapy workshop that was like five and a half days long. And I incorporated the story of Scrooge uh, into that uh, workshop. And the more we started fleshing out the story that Dickens penned, it really hit us how this was uh, an amazing template uh, for transformation. Mm -hmm. And basically speaking, a Scrooge, Scrooge was in what uh, we call pre-contemplation by the six stages of change by Petraska which means uh, we commonly call that denial. <laughs> he just, he didn't know how he showed up. He didn't know how people viewed him. I mean, he was just this cratchety, old, tight-fisted, cold-hearted guy that, that nobody liked. And that would uh, describe a lot of us in many areas of our life, not just finance, but, but there's some areas in our life we're really open to and aware, and other areas we're clueless. Mm-hmm. Well, so he was clueless. Then uh, an intervention happened. In this case, it was his uh, uh, old partner, the ghost of his old partner, Marley. And basically kind of slapped him upside the head and said, dude, you continue this way. Uh, it's not going to end well. So there's a process that he went through. Uh, at first, the ghost of Christmas past took him into his past. Right. And in looking at the past, he laughed, he cried, he trembled in fear. I mean, when you look at that, it was very experiential in what he went through. It wasn't just cognitive. It mm-hmm. was it was refeeling these emotions. And what really struck us was I kind of come out of a, a branch of therapy known as psychodrama or experiential therapy. Uh, which is very feeling based um, um, as, as versus say cognitive, and right. it just felt like like he went through ex, uh, experiential therapy, right. you know, in this scene, and then he goes into the present. Well, doing our own work, doing therapy, one of the benefits is it helps us become more present. I've often said that. Uh, we can only look as far forward as we've looked backward. Mm, yeah. So it helps us become present. Scrooge becomes present. All of a sudden he's seeing, oh, wow, this is what these people think of me. This is how I've been showing up. Oh, oh wow. You know, the curtain is open. Mm-hmm. And then the next one is he looks at the future. That, well, if you continue in this way, here's what the future is. And here's what the future could be. And what happens? He is transformed. He he becomes, uh, I think the last line of the book is, uh, there's never been a better employer, a better friend, mm-hmm. a better person in the whole city of London. And it's kind of amusing to me when people talk about, you're a Scrooge. <laughs> <laughs> it's never the Scrooge at the end of the book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's always the Scrooge yeah. at the beginning of the book. But Scrooge was transformed. And... This, we saw this pattern. And so we actually did the first clinical uh, treatment, uh, blind study uh, around the treatment of money disorders was based on the story of Scrooge. And it uh, scientifically proved that um, it was effective. And to our knowledge, uh, I did this with Klontz's, to our knowledge, it was the first clinical study of the treatment of disordered financial problems in psychology. So that's a long answer, but but that's the story of Scrooge. And I'm sure anybody who's read the book, we've ruined the Chris, Christmas Carol f- for them forever. <laughs> <laughs> well, when I read that book, I uh, Scrooge comes up in many of my four-year-old books. And I, I've like tried to talk to him about this, about the changing and the different uh, feeling your emotions. We're big on these these emotion books with him right now. And sometimes he's like, what are you talking about, Dad? Scrooge. Scrooge <laughs> just saved his money all the time. <laughs> um, so you, you touched on uh, this clinical study where you're looking at money dis- disorders. 
Can you touch on like what your definition is of a money money dis- disorder? Well, a money disorder is uh, something that's out of whack in your relationship with money. You know, like one of the disorders is gambling. Mm-hmm. To gamble is not a disorder. To be addicted to gambling to where it starts impacting your relationships in your life is a disorder. Right. Uh, say similar to drinking alcohol. To have a, a, a drink is not, does not mean one's an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. But to be addicted to it to where it starts impacting your relationships is. Mm-hmm. So um, hoarding is another disorder. Right. Well, saving stuff is not, not necessarily a disorder. Mm-hmm. But, it, you know, if you can't get around in your house and you have little pathways you have to follow because there's so much stuff, yeah, maybe this is a disorder. Yeah. So it's a, it's a, it's a real extreme amplification of something that uh, could be very normal and, and in some regards healthy. Yeah. Okay. So I, I want to talk about financial therapy and the and and really what it is and what drew you into financial therapy because based on my understanding of yourself, you were a financial planner before you started diving into the financial therapy. But um, before we go into that, can you explain to everybody what your perspective is? And I've read it in Facilitating Financial Health, but what internal versus external finances is so people can get an understanding. So that'll be the first question. And the second one is like for Scrooge, he went to his past and then he went to his present and, or the future. When he went to the future, he kind of saw what he wanted to get to. So if our goal is in, in, in your book, is I think you guys called, there's a quote here that I'm just looking for a balanced life or financial health. So the second part is, can you define what a balanced life is or what, what do you guys mean by financial health? So that, that two part, what is external versus external finance? And then that goal or that journey we're trying to embark on, which, and the reason why I'm saying that is because whenever we start diving deep into our emotions and our feelings, we know that's a difficult journey. And I find if we have a little more understanding where we're at and where we're going, we can be more committed to that goal. Sure. The internal external really is an application of the work uh, by a philosopher by the name of Ken Wilbur. He lives in Denver, Colorado, has written 26 books. Incredibly deep and bright guy. I have never finished one of his books. <laughs> and, and it came to us, it came to the financial planning profession through Dick Wagner, who I called the Oracle of Denver. Uh, who also lived in Denver and is in the equivalent of the um, Financial Planning Hall of Fame. And he applied this concept of interior and exterior. And basically, the exterior is what we can see. And this is featured in a book called uh, A Theory of Everything. And the application goes to just about everything. There's what we can see and what we can't see. Mm -hmm. So when it's applied to financial planning, the exterior would include really traditional financial planning the focus is on cash flow taxes estate planning just all of the exterior nuances of money okay so when we now look at well what's the underbelly you know when when uh, we opened up you you talked about what could be seen or immediately i thought of the iceberg right yeah and so if we use an iceberg, what we see, that's the exterior. Mm-hmm. What we don't see is the interior. That's what supports uh, all of this. And so that's the thoughts, feelings, beliefs that we have about money. It's the stories we make up about how money works. Uh, it's now what's um, uh, we're calling the money scripts, which are really beliefs about money. Mm-hmm. So it, it's all the unseen underbelly that drives the behaviors that are exterior. Right. So if we're just uh, addressing the exterior with no thought to the interior, this is where a financial planner will say, okay, you've told me this, this, and this. Great. Here's your plan. And the client says, that's great. 
And three months later, they come back in for another meeting and he says, how's things going? And they haven't done a thing. Mm -hmm. Or they've actually progressed the wrong way. (laughs) (laughs) And the planner's like, okay, I guess I didn't speak clearly enough. (laughs) Or maybe I need to raise my voice so you get it. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's how we deal in the exterior with this. And we might even call that client non-compliant. I was just going to say that. I think a lot of times there's like, oh, well, they're not my client anymore. Or yeah. they don't. They and don't... you're not a fit for me. Mm-hmm. And um, we'll see ya. And that's not necessarily a bad business model. It's absolutely an option that a, a planner works with a niche or just says, these are the people I can work with. Ted uh, Klontz and I used to teach a class that uh, had a title, There Are No Difficult Clients, Just Advisors That Have Run Out of Tools. Mm. And that speaks to this, you can only take a person as far as you've gone yourself. Yeah. At some point in time, I run mm. out of tools. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I honestly think I will run out of tools a lot quicker than some of my peers doing this work, or even mm-hmm. some of my students doing this work. Mm-hmm. And so there's no shame in running out of tools. Mm-hmm. And there's no shame in saying, wow, this is not a person I can be effective with. Mm-hmm. But can I say something? What I really yeah. like your perspective on that, and sorry to interrupt, but I think what, what I really take away from that is you said, I ran out of tools, not like the client is not compliant anymore. And I think that's a big, not just around money, like relationships in general is like, the acknowledgement that, hey, this is me. I've run out of tools. That's okay. We can now hand them off to someone else as opposed to, oh, they're not compliant. They're not a good client. Yeah, you bring out a really good point, Sean. And uh, that is keeping the focus on what we're responsible for. Mm -hmm. As Ted used to say, we're 100% responsible for our 50% of every relationship. Mm -hmm. And so... Uh, if I can focus on myself that, okay, I have run out of tools. It's, um, it takes away the blame. It mm-hmm. takes away the finger pointing, mm-hmm. the making the other person wrong, making the other person bad. And quite frankly, I think is more accurate. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's just some folks that need some really specialized tools. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I may not be the guy that, that has them. Mm-hmm. And I think it's better to know your limits as opposed to try to step into something that, you know, you could possibly do more damage to the client. Yeah, you bring up a really good point. And as you said in the intro, I teach a graduate course at GGU and I'm doing that as we speak. And it's so important to know yourself. And one of the chapters in facilitating financial health, I think, is do no harm. Mm-hmm. And one of the biggest concerns that every CFP has when they start doing this work is, um, you know, I'm not trained in this. Uh, How will I know when I'm really hurting the client? This is really scary stuff. I mean, shouldn't I just offload them to a therapist Mm -hmm. from the get-go? And uh, Dr. Klontz had one of the most ingenious ways of knowing when you've gone too far that I've ever come across. And he basically said, you have gone too far as a planner delving into the interior when you become uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, (laughs) I can do that. (laughs) (laughs) And for me, (laughs) becoming uncomfortable uh, happened very quickly. (laughs) Uh, But I think there's a lot of genius in that because it does play to the fact that I can take a person as far as I've gone myself. And I remember when uh, a client would start crying in a session and I became instantly uncomfortable and I would direct their (laughs) attention back to the plasma TV with the mutual fund chart on it. Mm-hmm. Like, oh my God, a feeling's gotten out. We got to stomp this. Yeah. Yeah. Get to the external. <laughs> <laughs> totally. And uh, today, more comfortable with that. In fact, I vividly remember the first time a client started crying and I reached over and pulled a tissue from a box and gave it to her. Now, to most of folks listening, it would be like, well, duh. 
<laughs> everybody do that? No. <laughs> and uh, that was at the, a point there that I had reached uh, becoming comfortable with those tears. Mm-hmm. But it took a lot of money and a lot of time to get me there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so can I, can I ask something? And, uh, and this is going from things that I've learned from, from you and Dr. Brad Klontz is sometimes when we shy away from an emotion or going somewhere, it could be a, a reflection of ourselves or something that we, we've experienced that we don't want to go. Was there something part of planning that kind of pushed you away from the feelings? Was it just feeling uncomfortable or was there something as you, like you mentioned doing the work, did you discover there was something around the emotions that you were, I guess, shying away from? Yeah. Well, I definitely shied away from emotions and it was systemic. It had nothing to do with financial planning. And that's why when you start doing this work, like I had somebody read facilitating financial health And she said, yeah, I was reading it to my husband. You know, the principles in this go far beyond money. Mm -hmm. And it's like, "Uh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. We've just taken very uh, broad universal principles and applied them to money. You can apply them to everything. So in my life, I had a belief that feelings were not good, that only weak people uh, show emotion. And that the whole goal in life was to flatline. Mm. In other words, show yeah. no emotion because that you're really in control and, mm-hmm. and a superior uh, human if you yeah. can do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's not the first thing I discovered in life. That <laughs> kind of screwed up. <laughs> so, so I just applied that to financial planning. Financial planning was all about the nuts and bolts of dollars and cents, right? There, mm-hmm. There's no place for emotion in here. In fact, it was in Canada, uh, in Vancouver, there used to be an organization called the ICFP, Institute of Certified Financial Planners. And we'd have a retreat every year. It was in 1989. And they had a psychologist speaking to us by the name of last name of Nixon. And I walked out of that session just kind of outraged. What is he doing here? We are not psychologists. We're not trained. This is not an area we want to go with. We are financial planners. So a lot of folks that have have read my books and stuff, they kind of assume that I'm this right brain, really in touch guy, you know, therapist type guy. And that couldn't be any further from the truth. (laughs) I have a wonderfully developed left brain. Mm -hmm. And I have spent 12 years of my life in group therapy and $80,000 to find out that I even had a right brain. So uh, that's kind of part of my story. And I think my appeal to financial planners specifically is most financial planners, not all, but but most are kind of like numbers and, Mm -hmm. and like planning. and. I kind of say, you know, if I, if I can do this work, about anybody can do this work. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily going to be easy for them. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of what, what uh, drew me to change. Uh, also, the recognition back in 1999 of, at that time, uh, we did a lot of investing as financial planners. Mm-hmm. That, you know, this in, the investments are probably going to become a commodity. Mm-hmm. That there's going to be no secret sauce. In investments, Mm -hmm. and maybe I should start looking at forming relationships. And then in 2002, Daniel Kahneman Kahneman Mm -hmm. produced his book and his research as a psychologist who won the Nobel Prize for economics, who found that 90% of all financial decisions are made in the limbic system emotionally. Mm -hmm. Only 10% are we thinking. Well, you know, this is pretty shocking stuff especially to exterior left brain planners <laughs> who think 90% of all financial decisions are made cognitively. Yeah. And of course they think, well, they are the exception because they make cognitive <laughs> yeah. decisions, right? And yeah. Which is not the case. So it, it was the understanding that the, the relationship's going to play more importance as we go forward. Uh, now we're looking at the fact that financial planning will probably become a commodity. Mm-hmm. 
And so where my views 20 years ago were kind of an anomaly, like, yeah, I remember I put a, I, I submitted a paper to the journal of financial planning and you get peer reviewed, right? Mm-hmm. And so I got back uh, the commentators reviews and this uh, one person said, well, you know, Kaler makes a pretty good case for all of this. I just hope he's wrong. <laughs> so what we see today is now it's becoming pretty mainstream in the financial planning profession that we've got to really become experts on uh, the brain, how the brain works, uh, how we think, feelings and emotions, because that is driving all the behaviors around finance. Yeah. And so a whole bunch of things going through my head now. That last statement, that's what's driving our financial behaviors. I think at least here in Canada, I see people get frustrated that uh, year after year, we see higher levels of debt. We see higher levels of stress around money. So I think there's, um, there's, I guess, the pre-contemplation of, or maybe even beyond, a little bit beyond, like, okay, I want to do something, but it's just the amount of expenses that they've accumulated, that they, you know, kind of the system has got them to spend, they kind of feel stuck. So how do people, without having the ghost of the past come, come to them and show them how they've been, like their past, how would you say people start to dive into the journey of embarking on this financial well-being, financial well-being journey or financial health? Like, Where would you start in terms of even looking towards money scripts? Yeah, what's coming to mind right away is where I wouldn't start. Mm-hmm. And uh, where I wouldn't start is where most people start, which is finance, financial literacy. Mm-hmm. A lot of folks immediately mm-hmm. think if they're going more and more into debt and, and uh, they're stuck and uh, they're trying to do new things and it's not happening, that what they need is more information. Mm-hmm. You know, if I just understood how mutual funds work, if I just un- understood how a budget works, if I just understood more maybe that would change my behavior. Probably for 80% of the people, that's not going to work. It's kind of like saying I'm overweight. And the reason I'm overweight is because I don't understand how calories and fat grams and things like that work. And I need more information. (laughs) Uh, You know, we're inundated with information on diets and exercise and everything. We probably don't need more information. So mm-hmm. what's driving it? It's the same with money. We're mm-hmm. inundated with money. And, and you ask, nine, uh, ask 10 people, uh, should you be spending more than you make? Nine out of 10 are going to say <laughs> no. And yet in the U.S., 15% of people are technically bankrupt and 55% of people live hand, hand to mouth or month to month. Why? You know, we know to do differently, but we don't do differently well. It goes to looking into the past. And this is, this is the really difficult thing. And why well, I'm really glad we're doing a podcast because most reporters would like in three nice bullet points, three nice sound bites, how can you put yourself on the path? Mm-hmm. Well, financial <laughs> therapy or looking into the past is not do this, this, and this, and you're there. Yeah. Unless we can make a bullet point, well... Start taking a look into your past and how the past is is um, manifesting itself in your present. Okay, well, <laughs> that's like the little tip of an iceberg. <laughs> and what's that mean? Yeah. How do I do that? Yeah. I think you know. I think the word that you use that is uh, really important is the word stuck. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that's where financial therapy really comes in. Does every Everybody need financial therapy? No. Could almost everybody benefit from financial therapy? Yes. But there's different degrees of financial therapy and different degrees of uh, what the need is. I think the real thing for your listeners to be aware of is if they are stuck. They want to change their behavior. They want to do something different, but they keep doing Mm -hmm. the same harmful behavior over and over. That's the sign that it's no longer cognitive. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. It is emotional. Mm-hmm. It's in the limbic system. And the only way I know of, of permanently changing that behavior is to start to take a look at the past, mm-hmm. the money scripts, the events, which, which we in facilitating financial health use the money egg mm-hmm. or the money atom to start mm-hmm. opening up and, and help us look at our story around money. And as we start doing that, typically there's a ton of ahas that start pop, popping up that will say, no wonder I do this. Here's a, a huge principle that um, Ted Klontz uh, brought forth. And I remember we were in Nashville. I remember being in the car when he said this. He said, you know, all financial behaviors make perfect sense. They're totally logical. No matter how illogical they are to you or other people, they make perfect sense when we understand the underlying money script, Mm -hmm. the belief and that is a game changer. Mm-hmm. Because first of all, to, to any listener, there's no shame in being stuck. Right. You know, there's, there's no purpose in beating yourself up. Certainly 70% of brains are wired to not do money well. Mm-hmm. So it, it's not a deficiency that you don't do money well. And it, it's, a, it's a combination of how our brain works and it's a combination of our stories and the, the money scripts that we accumulate, you know, in our, usually in our childhood. Mm-hmm. So the behaviors make sense. And there hasn't been a, a quote, illogical behavior, maybe like we could call it a harmful behavior, that we haven't traced back to something that makes perfect sense. It's like, mm-hmm. Well, of course, if I believed that, if I'd had those yeah. types of experiences, I would absolutely be spending money in the way that I'm spending or having doing the behavior that I'm doing. Yeah. And I, I, when I, I read that in the, your, the facilitating financial health, I thought it was so profound to think about like a coupleship, people together in a relationship. And often they might think that there's some dysfunctional money behaviors on the other spouse. But when I read that, that they're all the, the, the money behaviors make perfect sense based on the past history and the money scripts. I thought that was extremely profound, even for couples, because I think there's also blame going on in couples around money. I mean, we don't talk about, most people don't even talk about money before they get married. One research article I read said, I forget the percentages, but it was very low talk about money before they get married. But if they ever get divorced and remarried, it's extremely high talked about. So I've found personally that understanding that family history and those scripts give way to accept that someone's behaviors are like that right now. They might, you know, they might be causing some sort of harm, but not to judge them or have blame on them. They are like you've guys said that they're, they're make rational sense based on those things. And I've, I've seen individuals who have shared your guys' books with who've came back to me and be like, no wonder I'm buying all this stuff for my kids. So I really, really like that. And I think you guys make a good point. And I, I speak from experience on this is when I've realized that I've accept my behaviors. I just accept them. I acknowledge them. Then I can move past them. And I, I've heard you talk about how when you do that, it's like 45 seconds, I think I heard you say one time. It's like when you recognize that feeling, be like, okay, I accept that. Then you could start to move forward. I don't know if you have any comments on that. Psychologists say that the average uh, difficult feeling, probably any emotion, lasts for 45 to 90 seconds. So if we can just truly feel that feeling, it will pass. And what's the point? You know, when I started doing this, I'm like, God, these people, all this psycho babble talk, feel the feeling. I mean, what's the point? <laughs> Who wants to feel fear? Who wants to feel this? Let's just get on with life and forget about it. And so what I learned was that the feeling is a... Um, one person called it a bell of awakening. It's a sign. It's a natural phenomenon given to our brain that we need to pay attention. And the benefit of feeling a feeling is clarity. Mm -hmm. It is being objective. 
And this is huge because when I am in my feelings, when I'm, uh, we use the word triggered, Mm -hmm. okay, and what that means is if you uh, make a a fist and put put your thumb in your fist, that's your brain, Mm -hmm. and your thumb is the amygdala or your limbic system, and the curled fingers is uh, the cognitive part cognitive part of your brain. And when I get triggered, uh, uh, brain researchers say there's an actual chemical that comes in and uh, disconnects the cognitive from the limbic system. Mm -hmm. And that this can last, uh, take maybe 30 seconds, uh, a minute, even more for that chemical to drain out. Well, we all know this. We all have seen it, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Especially if we have any, any partner or in any relationship, we know when some more facts are not going to help the situation, (laughs) right? Yeah. (laughs) And this is not the time for logic. Yes. So it's um, so important for us to get to a point of clarity. And I struggle with this today. I have a part of me that will get really upset. And just um, there's a book called Lay Down and Die or Sue the Bastards. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it talks about codependence and how they swing from one extreme to the other. And this is typical victim uh, mentality. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I'll take and take and take and take and take and take and take until I blow up. Boom. Right. Right. And both are extremes. Mm-hmm. And neither one is founded in objectivity and clarity. Right. And this is because the emotions are being pushed aside and resisted and stuffed down. And I lived my life, as I said before, doing that. So I said all that to say, feeling a feeling is so important. There's another aspect to that, which I struggle with. I can talk about my feelings, mm-hmm. but talking about a feeling is not the same as feeling it. Mm-hmm. And I that hit me I don't know a few years ago like oh my god there's a difference between talking about a feeling (laughs) and feeling a feeling and I've been in group therapy for I don't know probably a total of 15 years of my life and I'm like wow I've sure talked about a lot of feelings but I haven't felt it I wish somebody had told this to me (laughs) when I first started out and then It couldn't have been a month later. I'm going through some old books and kind of cleaning some stuff out. And I grabbed one that was like one of the first books I ever read. And I'm kind of flipping through it. And I got highlighted stuff all over. And all of a sudden, my eyes fell on a highlighted paragraph (laughs) that said, you know, there's a huge difference between talking about (laughs) feeling and feeling a feeling. (laughs) That is the benefit. So kind of back to one of the questions you asked, like, if you're stuck, where would you start? Well, I think I would start with uh, money scripts, Mm -hmm. understanding my money scripts. And I think I would start with something that would start helping me identify what a feeling was. I mean, Mm -hmm. I did, I couldn't even identify them. I wasn't even aware of them. I remember when my coach asked me, so tell me, I'm going through something. What, what are you feeling around this? Ah, I don't know what I'm feeling. Well, where in your body? Do you notice anything going on in your body? I'm like, what body? <laughs> and I thought that was the biggest bunch of psychobabble I ever heard. But what I did come to discover factually, scientifically, is feelings started sensations in the body before yeah. we put words to them. Yeah. Oh, wow, this tightness in my stomach. Oh, what's going on? Fear. So the whole point is clarity and being objective. And what happens from that? Really good, sound money decisions. And how long as a financial planner did I advertise? We help people make sound financial decisions. We sure didn't have the tools (laughs) to do that or to help them. I mean, we do today. But, yeah. So that's the payoff. That, you know, I really, really like this answer. And I can't stop laughing when you talked about the feeling of feeling. And I remember working with a, a coach and a therapist on yeah, just understanding my feelings more. And I kept saying, like, 
this is how I'm feeling. They're like, no, no, you're thinking about what, how you're feeling. You're, you're having a thought about how you're feeling. Like, how do you feel? I'm like, I'm, I'm telling you, this is how I feel. And they went same sort of thing as you. No, explain what's going on in your body. I'm like, scared? They're like, yes. <laughs> like fear. And like, oh, okay. And um, yeah, I feel like as I've embarked on this journey, when I relate it back to financial planning, like I said to someone the other day, I'm like, I think someone, if they really did the, the internal work, like real, and this is maybe over dramatic, but if they really did the over our uh, inner work and just saved like in a one, two percent savings account, but did the internal work or comfortable and where they want to spend their money, spent their money on their values because they actually dug deep and understand their core values and live by those core values. I think they could live a more balanced or more financial health life than someone who just obsesses about the external side of it. Yeah, well, the one question we never have gotten to is to define the the, the balance. You know, what, what is a healthy uh, uh, what is a healthy relationship with money look like? And yes, the, I think that the the goal of all this is balance. It is to have more time of presence and uh, object objectivity around our money. Uh, It is, I think it's really living in the middle and not the extremes, you know, not being triggered, (laughs) (laughs) which means being really present. But I, I think there's a huge amount of objectivity that comes with being present uh, and being balanced. So, you know, if, if I had to boil it down to one word, and I, I'm processing this, obviously, as I'm mm-hmm. talking, I would say it's presence. presence. It's really hard to be out of balance mm-hmm. when we're present. Mm-hmm. And I think if I can be approaching money decisions, being fully present, being able and fully attentive, and being fully aware of being able to see all the options and and things that can be done, I think that goes a long way to uh, to really living in uh, good balance around my money and my money relationships. Yeah, I, I really really appreciate that perspective and that just that word presence. And I mean, it speaks to a quote I grabbed from your guys' book. Regardless of whether you approach financial health from the exterior or the inter- interior, professionals agree balanced life is not just about money. And I mean, you're, you're saying it in that one word right now, presence. So, Yeah, it's, it's really hard to separate becoming healthy around your money with becoming healthy. For example, we found in the work that we did, we were noticing a link between being overweight and having money issues. Mm. And what we were finding was it's really the same skills. Mm-hmm. It's really the same interior skills that will help a person go from overspending to also go from being overweight. And who did I, I talked to somebody recently who's a dietitian, And she was like, oh, man, I have never seen that. But you're absolutely right. Because we were going through what needs to change to make good money decisions. Mm-hmm. And now there's a, actually a university in Munich, Germany, that did research on this, that has come out with research supporting this, that there is absolutely a correlation between being overweight and being over and over debt. So the point being systemically that, well, <laughs> Dr. Ted Klontz used to say this, he says, you know, it's not about the money. Mm-hmm. Money's just a symptom. Uh, whether it's about overeating, over drinking, overspending, it all goes to the same room. Mm-hmm. It's the same trauma that produces these uh, behaviors and the symptoms. Mm-hmm. So y- you can't work on your money issues without working on probably all of your issues. Yeah. Which, uh, which can make it so threatening, right? Mm-hmm. I think it's a, a person that has the courage to go here uh, really has a passion to live life as big as they can, as full as they can, mm-hmm. because it takes a lot of work and humility and courage 
to do this interior work. That's why the average person hasn't done it. Mm-hmm. You know, there is no pill. Mm-hmm. There, you can't read yourself to financial health. Right. That's called financial literacy. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing in teaching a course. When they, uh, when GGU first approached me to teach a course online to help planners become integrated in, in interior, I'm like, <laughs> I can't do that. You can't, you can't read about this. No. It's experiential. Yeah. Well, finally, they came back to me after I turned them down. I said, well, let me give it a try. So, yeah, we've been pretty successful with that. But you can't, you can't read yourself to health. It's just the same as if you golf, right? Mm-hmm. I can be a great golfer if I read about 10 books yeah. <laughs> on how to golf. Yeah. And I'll go out on the golf course and be Nicholas, you know? Jack Nicholas. <laughs> no. <laughs> I yeah. have proven that doesn't work. You don't me, even want to see standing in back of me. Yeah. <laughs> so it's the same way here. So Rick, as you're talking, again, I don't need to tell you how much your message just resonates with me, but it does. And I just think it's such a, a good conversation that you're having. The work you're doing is phenomenal. Two things have made me think about something, though. You talked about having the tools as financial advisors to go there. I'm kind of thinking it on the other end for people having the tools to go there. And I'm wondering if you can comment at all, and this is not something we talked about, but you mentioned about 55, I think it was 55% of uh, Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. Canada, we're at 51%, so roughly the same. And then you talked about some people who are hand-to-mouth. Something that's always been talked about is how does everybody access financial planning? Like, this is a system issue now. Do you have any insight on how more people, because what I feel you're on, like this internal work is so good, but I feel like the system doesn't allow certain people to access that. And my thoughts on this is we never know the end answer, but maybe we know some information can get us there. Do you have any comments on how the system can sort of change to help these people who don't have the tools necessary? Yeah, that's... um that's a pretty big question <laughs> Sorry. grappling with for a long time, you know, and, and I think financial planning or financial therapy has got to become recognized as a profession first, mm-hmm. because if you look at law, if you look at medicine, if you look at uh, psychology, all of those have been recognized by governments as really necessary uh, professions and mm-hmm. have some type of subsidies available to them to bring it to the masses. Mm -hmm. I think financial planning is going to have to be recognized uh, as that. And um, uh, so that it can, uh, uh, social workers can uh, be skilled in financial therapy. And it's going that way. You know, there's, there's more and more in the financial therapy association, folks who are social workers that are getting trained like this. So they can bring this information uh, to uh, more underprivileged sectors of our society. But, as, you know, so far, as you alluded to, it, you pretty much have to have the money to be able to, to afford a financial planner and a therapist in a session or hire somebody who's a financial therapist. But I, I think eventually uh, that financial planning will be recognized as a really critical, mm-hmm. critical profession. And that will, um, we'll see that. But it may take us 20 years. Yeah. I, I really appreciate it. And uh, thank you so much, Rick, for being on the call. I, I feel like I could talk to you for a whole day, but you're a busy man. So take care. Yes, I have totally enjoyed uh, being with you. Absolutely. Okay. It's been thanks. a pleasure and an honor. And thanks for all your work. Okay. okay. Thank you. Take yep. care. Yeah. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in this week. You know, I want to give my key lessons or takeaways from this interview with Rick because they really stuck with me. And and the first one, so number one is doing the interior work is critical if you want a thriving relationship with money and yourself. And as Rick suggested, the interior work is all the emotions and feelings that go along with our money and financial planning and personal finances. Often we assume the more information we 
intake or the more information we learn about investing and how stocks work, the happier we're going to be or the richer we're going to be. But the research is clear that if we're not happy with the interior of ourselves, it doesn't matter how much money we're going to have. And that's what I really enjoy about Rick and his perspective. Two, much in the same notion as number one, but I really thought it was important when Rick talked about the importance of feeling a feeling and how it's key to financial success. He talked a lot about learning how to feel our feelings and understand the emotions. Rick talked about Kalaman's research that showed that 90% of all financial decisions are emotional. Yeah, 90%. And yet, if we look at ourselves as we try to better our financial journey, how often are we looking at the emotional side? No, we're usually looking at what's the best investment? How do I save more? How do I invest more? Sure, these things are important, but if 90% of all of our financial decisions are emotionally driven, that just points us back to the importance of understanding what's going on inside of ourselves. In fact, I was listening to a podcast this week with Gwyneth Paltrow, and she talked about how when she was 27 and won the Oscar, she thought that it was going to be this glorious event that's just going to fulfill her and make her so happy. But she realized she was the same person when, or sorry, she was the same person before she won it and after. And in fact, it actually made her depressed to realize that she won this Oscar, the thing she's been working for and sacrificing. And when she won it, nothing changed other than her feeling like that's it. And money's no different. Usually we're chasing this big goal, this large amount of money. And when we get there, we might get the same feeling if we haven't changed the dialogue inside of our brains. And the third one is living in the middle is the most important place to be, not on the extreme ends. So what Rick talks about there is being present, enjoying the moment right now. I often have to remind myself of that. I have my beautiful wife, my two awesome kids. I have everything that I really want right now, but often I find myself thinking about the future, saving for the future, thinking about, ah, when I'm retired, I'll enjoy at that point. But instead, like Rick says, don't live on the extremes of nostalgia or the future. Let's enjoy now because now's the only time we have. Of course, we got to look back at lessons learned from the past and look forward to the future. But really trying to be present, I think, is a key to financial success as it facilitates and allows and invites us to enjoy and be happy. If you've been enjoying the shows and want to continue to see great guests, please, I have a big favor to ask. Can you head over to Apple or Spotify and leave a rating and a review as it really helps in the rankings so that I can continue to bring good guests week after week. Thank you so much and have a great day.